Our choir is getting better and better, if you haven't noticed. And next week you'll see a little change in the sanctuary, which is a result of our growth of the choir. And um, I think they had 31 at rehearsal on Wednesday night, and this is summer. So uh, we're trying to to find a way to grow the choir and make room for that. So uh, you'll see the result of that next Sunday, and it'll be a secret till then. So... The series is the book of Esther, the providence of God on display. This is part three in the series. The difference one life makes is the part today. And my reading will be from Esther chapter four. My sources include Mervyn Brenneman's The New American Commentary on Esther, Ian DeGuide, Esther from the Reformed Expository Commentary, uh, Derek Prime, Unspoken Lessons About the Unseen God, and a message by David Strain, The plot thickens. And the plot is that there's this young woman named Esther, a Jewish girl who's living in a foreign land. The people of Israel have been exiled to uh, a faraway land. And they're in the land of Persia. And so this is the 5th century B.C. We're in the mid-400s. And Esther, her uncle, Mordecai, another uh, character in this, uh, Esther is elevated to the role of queen, and if you missed that, you can uh, listen to the podcast or our, on our website, uh, parts one and two. Uh, Esther is a, a young girl who is actually, she's risen to prominence in a big way, uh, as the king was embarrassed by the queen, and the queen was deposed, and then they had a beauty contest, and Esther is the one that won the beauty contest. And uh, now she's queen, and uh, things are not going well because of a man named Haman. Haman is an evil man who hates Mordecai in particular, and the Jews in general. And so he wants to wipe them out. And so that's kind of where we were last week, uh, when a decree was issued by the king. He was manipulated by Haman, and this decree was issued to exterminate all Jews. And so that's kind of where we are in chapter 4. Uh, Please stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. Esther chapter 4, we'll start at verse uh, 1. This is the word of God. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. Why did he do that? Because of the decree to exterminate the Jews. But he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and the order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews. With fasting, weeping, and wailing, many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. And then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict, for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show to Esther and explain to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. 
Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. And then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this, your word. Help us as we understand it by your spirit's illumination. We thank you for the enlightenment of your spirit to help us understand spiritual things and truths. So teach us today, O Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. Please be seated. Columbia researchers have found that the average person makes about 70 decisions every single day. 70 decisions every single day. That's 25,500 decisions every year. Over a period of 70 years, that's 1,788,500 decisions. The 20th century French philosopher Albert Camus once said, Life is a sum of all of your choices. And so I want you to think about all those choices that you've made throughout your life. All 1,788,500 of them. (laughs) And that's who you are. You are the sum of those choices, those small choices, those big choices. That's who you are. You know, as I get older, I think about a lot of those choices that I've made through the years. And the funny thing about growing older is, while your body feels older, at times a lot older, Your mind never really does. I've had some elderly friends that tried to explain that to me, and now I get it. I mean, hopefully, you know, as you grow older, you're wiser and able to make better decisions because now you're an adult, right? You know, you have adult reasoning capabilities. But my point is, I still remember what it was like to be a teenager and to think as a teenager. A lot like maybe Esther. Of course, I'm a guy and she's a gal, but uh, you know what I mean. And, and thankfully, thankfully, while I was still a young person, still in my teens, someone said this to me. You are very fast becoming the person that you will be the rest of your life. You are very fast becoming the person that you will be the rest of your life. 
And you think as a young person, I have the rest of my life to worry about big decisions. Not really. Not really. You make big decisions all the time as you grow. I mean, even if you don't intend to, to run for public office, you need to be thinking about those decisions. So what if you were young Esther? What if you were young Esther? What if your life was taken away from you? And you faced other people making decisions on your behalf. You wouldn't like it, would you? Not at all. And as we said last week, we tend to think of Esther as this young adult. Well, think again. The experts say that she was probably 14 or 15 at the time that she was drafted as a potential queen. Then there was 12 months of preparation before she took her turn with the king. The fact that each woman spent the night with the king implies sexual relations, which most likely took place when Esther was 16 and the king was 36. So is it statutory rape? Not in this culture, not in that culture. The age of consent in Mississippi is 16. And again, there is this close in age exception. If a person is close to your age, then there's an exception. But, wow, 20 years? Even in Persia, that had to be strange. But actually, in that culture, it was not uncommon for a teenage girl to marry an older man. So, four years of war follows for the king. And then at that time, we found out in our text... And actually in Esther chapter 4, and Esther is probably 20 at this time, and the king, Xerxes, is 40. He's a middle-aged man. So the last time we learned that Haman, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, because he comes from the people of Agag, the Amalekites, uh, Haman, in his rage against Mordecai, has convinced the amoral king, Xerxes, to exterminate all the Jews throughout the empire. Esther's father, I call her his father, is Mordecai. Mordecai hears of this plan by the wicked Haman. We don't know how he heard, most likely from his position at the king's gate, which we talked about last week. And it's at this point that Mordecai, who really is her cousin, but now acts like an uncle and really more like a father, Reasons that the only way that his people will be able to avoid destruction is if he can somehow convince his daughter, Queen Esther, to approach the king. Which is an extremely dangerous thing. We, we don't understand this. I mean, you know, people approach the president, they talk to the president, but you could not approach the king in this culture without being summoned to approach the king. And so that leads us to our lessons for today, which are four. Four lessons. So let's look at the first one, which is a crisis discovered. A crisis discovered, and that's in verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes. Now, you know, you see that in the New Testament because the Jewish people tear clothes when they hear an abomination, when they hear blasphemy, or when they're grieving. And so he tears and rips his clothes and then he puts on sackcloth, which is, you know, kind of like, um, you know, something like a bag, like a sack, 
um, a coarse sack, and, and he wore that, and then sits in ashes for a time. And then he got up and walked about the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. And he went, it says, only as far as the king's gate. Now, so Esther may now be queen of Persia, but the sad thing is, even though she's queen, she doesn't really know all that's going on in the land where she lives. She doesn't know all about the decisions of her husband, the king. And upon hearing the news of the plan of Haman to destroy the Jewish people and to wipe out the entire Jewish race, Mordecai tears his clothes. So he's expressing outrage, grief, and based on what the Jewish people were facing, it was no doubt a combination of both outrage and grief. What follows is a dialogue in our chapter, in our text, between Esther and Mordecai, although they never get to speak face to face or personally with each other. So imagine the sight of Mordecai walking through the city, wailing, wailing loudly and bitterly. He did that for two reasons. One, to express his grief, his outrage over the decision to annihilate the Jews. And secondly, to get the attention of the queen. He wants to get the queen's attention. He knows he's got to do something or this is going to go the wrong way. Now, there could also be the fact that, that Mordecai feels somewhat responsible for this decision because if he'd only bowed down to Haman like everyone else, this might not be happening. You see, Haman was promoted, promoted to second in command. Promoted to the point of being basically the prime minister. And so whenever he would ride through the city, everybody would fall down and bow down to him. But Mordecai refused to do that. Mordecai refused to bow down because he did not want to break one of God's commandments. Which one? Number two. You shall not make for yourself an idol and you shall not bow down to them. And so let's talk about that for a moment. We all have our idols, don't we? Idols aren't just something of the Bible days. We have those things that are so precious to us, we basically bow down to them. What are yours? What are your idols? Well, at any rate, Mordecai's actions were effective. Queen Esther's maids and eunuchs told her about her father, Mordecai, that her, he was in great distress, as the scripture puts it. She still didn't understand because her first response was to simply send him what? New clothes. Here, take those things off and put on some new clothes. <laughs> and he refused them. Why did he refuse them? That's not his point. He doesn't want to put on new clothes. He wants her to get an understanding of what's going on in the country. So at that point, Esther, since he sent back the clothes, Esther sent out Hathak, who, who was a eunuch, whom the king had appointed to wait on Esther, or, so he could find out what the reason for what the reason was for Mordecai's mourning. And so, look at verse six through nine once again. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. We don't know how he found that out, but we, he found it out, and he was an official. In somehow in government. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain, to, explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and to plead with him for her people. 
So Mordecai's first objective had been achieved. She finally found out there's a crisis. There's a crisis in this country. And I ask you, have you faced a crisis lately? Have you faced a crisis lately? Are you facing one now? You know, when you're in the, in the beginning part of a crisis, the first thought is to do what? Run away from it. I, I don't want to deal with this. I don't have time to deal with this. But you know what? When you're in the middle of a crisis, that's not the time to run. That's not, to, not, not the time to fear. It's the worst thing you can actually do. You need to face it. Otherwise, the crisis is just going to linger. It's going to bother you. It's going to destroy you. Face the crisis. And sure, there may come a time where you need to rethink some decisions that led to this crisis, if you had any part in the crisis. And a lot of times, we don't have any part in the crisis. It just happens. So we need to face it and ask God for the grace to not only face it, but to walk through it in His grace. As my mentor likes to say, stay the course. Don't let crises send you to the right or to the left. Stay the course. Turn with me to Isaiah 41, verse 10. Isaiah 41, 10 is a favorite verse for many people. It might be a verse that becomes your favorite today. Isaiah 41.10. Especially if you're in a crisis, you need to hear this verse. So do not fear, for I am with you, the Lord says. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God is with you. If you're a believer... If you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, He's your Savior, He's your Lord, then He is for you in this crisis, whatever it is that's going on around you. So by the grace of God, learn to push through in hard times. Learn to push through in hard times, because life is hard, life is complicated, life is mysterious. Sometimes we can't figure out what God is doing, and that's why we need to push forward. Turn with me to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, chapter 16. Here's another great memory verse that you should memorize. Jesus is trying to prepare the disciples for his departure. And he says, I've told you these things so that in me, in me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. As the late Elizabeth Elliot once said and wrote, suffering is never for nothing. That's the title of her book. Suffering is never for nothing. The book that her daughter published, we had the privilege, our ladies did, of meeting Valerie Shepherd, Valerie Elliot Shepherd. Valerie, the daughter of Jim Elliot and Elizabeth Elliot. And Elizabeth Elliot could teach us all a lot about being tough in hard times. Because Valerie's father was speared to death along with his friends, all five missionaries in 1956 in the jungles of Ecuador, for trying to share with the Alka Indians the gospel. But they thought they were cannibals, so they, they speared them to death. They couldn't communicate. 
And what did Elizabeth Elliot do? Well, she stayed there. Her daughter was 10 months old. She'd been married to Jim Elliot for three years. She loved this man so very much, waited six years to marry him. And then he's taken from her. Suffering is never for nothing, she writes. And she died four years ago yesterday. And she was a courageous, tough lady. I met her in 1986. And I was expecting her to be this, you know, genteel woman. She really wasn't. She was quite direct, blunt, and not really very friendly. But after knowing her story, you'd understand. And that's why she would say this. When you go through troubles, don't get in touch with your feelings. Submit radically to God and do what is right no matter what. Put your love life on the altar and keep it there until God takes it off. Suffering is normal. Have you no scars, no wounds with Jesus on the Calvary Road? A crisis discovered. When you have a crisis, confront it. And that's the second lesson. A crisis confronted. Look at verse 10 and 11 of chapter 4. Verse 10 and 11. So then she instructed him to say to Mordecai. See, there's this conversation going back and forth. Verse 11. All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the golden scepter to them and spares their lives. And then she says something pretty important. Thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. She says, you know, it's not a good time. It's not a good time. You want me to go to the king? He hasn't even asked for me for 30 days. I'm out of his mind. And you expect me to just approach him unsummoned? So she doesn't really want to get involved. I mean, she's honest. I appreciate that. She says it's been a month since the king summoned for her, so she's feeling pretty insecure and inadequate. She basically said to tell her father, Mordecai, this is impossible. Find another plan. I mean, the law was clear. You approach the king in the inner court without being summoned, there's one penalty for that, death. You've probably always heard that Esther was a heroine. And eventually she was. The fact is, she's just like you and me. She's just like us. Her first thought in the face of this crisis was to look at what? The difficulties. The problems. Do you know what one of the worst sins in the Bible is? Cowardice. Cowardice. Did you know that? Look with me in Revelation 21. The back of the New Testament, the last book of the Bible, Revelation 21, is a whole list of things, a whole list of sins that will be judged in the last days, on that last day. And Revelation 21, verse 8 says this, But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars... They will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So that's the judgment for unbelieving pagans. 
And right at the first is the cowardly. Cowardice is one of the most common of all sins. Someone has said, cowardice asked the question, is it safe? Consensus asked the question, is it popular? Conscience asked, is it right? As I've said from the beginning, the book of Esther is about God's sovereignty and God's providence. So my question is, do you know the difference? In your outline, providence is God's intervention in history. Providence is God's intervention in history. And providence is only possible because of God's sovereignty. That God is the king. God's sovereignty is the idea that God is in control of everything And God carries out his sovereignty through personal, providential acts in our lives. So yes, if I ever throw out the word luck, I have people like you that correct me and say, Pastor, we don't, remember, we don't believe in luck. And we don't. We believe in providence. But did you know that God's sovereignty is no excuse for not doing your duty? I I mean to say... Well, the world's in trouble, but but God will fix it. And He will, but that's not the point. Has it ever occurred to you that God intends to fix the world through you? He might. He might. He might lay on your heart something so heavy that you know God is speaking to you to do something about it. John Calvin, the father of Presbyterianism, the one that when you think of the sovereignty of God, people want to blame him for saying that we can lay aside all human responsibility in the face of crisis. That's not true. That's not true. Listen to John Calvin as he wrote in his Institutes. We are not at all hindered by God's eternal decrees, either from looking ahead for ourselves or from putting all our affairs in order, but always in submission to his will. It is very clear what our duty is. Thus, if the Lord has committed to us the protection of our life, our duty is to protect it. If he offers helps, to use them. If he forewarns us of dangers, not to plunge headlong. If he makes remedies available, not to neglect them. So at first, when Esther hears of the crisis and what she's being asked to do in the face of that crisis, she is faint of heart. Pastor Derek Prime says, boldness of faith should characterize us first in prayer and then in the action that faith in God demands. And Esther, well, let's just say she wasn't there yet. At least our third lesson, which is a crisis challenged, a crisis challenged. Verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think, you know who this sounds like? It sounds like a dad. Do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will rise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. Mordecai's response was intended to challenge Esther to recognize that it's a lot more important to fear the Lord than it is to fear the king or any other person. And sure, there are times when it is completely appropriate to be silent, but there are also times when it's entirely appropriate appropriate to open your mouth and speak. 
Mordecai wasn't putting all the pressure on Esther. He did say, you know, there's, there's always going to be a way out. That's what he was saying in verse 14. You know, there will be deliverance from another place if you don't do this. Basically a reminder that our God is sovereign. And he will work it out. Mordecai took comfort in the God who is able. Psalm 121, I love Psalm 121. It's not just for funerals. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Which leads me to say, our keeping silence or our speaking up is not to be influenced by what people might think of us, what people say about us, or what people do to us. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we should plan our course out of reverence for Christ. So when Mordecai had said just about all he had to say, he added one key thought, and I call this the clincher, the closer. This is the verse that this book is known for. Verse 14. And who knows? Who knows? But that you, Esther, have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai spoke like a father to his daughter, not like a subject to the queen. Mordecai was saying basically what Joseph in the book of Genesis said to his brothers in Genesis chapter 45, verse 5. God sent me ahead of you to save lives. But Mordecai does not mention God. Yet God is the one behind his thinking. It makes sense that in the audience he's speaking to is Persian, not Jewish, that he might leave that out. But regardless, the Lord uses Mordecai's boldness and Esther receives it. She receives this challenge as coming from her father. And on this Father's Day, why don't you think about right now some of the admonitions that your father gave you. Or your grandfather gave you. Or some father figure gave you. A mentor. I think about those times that my dad had hard things to say to me on this Father's Day. And I am grateful for those things that my dad had the courage to say to me that I needed to hear. That at times I have been not courageous enough to say to my own children. I'm so thankful for fathers. And for father figures, for elders, for those who are courageous. Are you courageous, Dad? God calls you to be courageous. And tell your kids the truth. In love, obviously. But tell your kids, tell your children, tell your grandchildren, tell those that you are discipling, mentoring, tell them the truth. And then the final lesson is a crisis averted, a crisis discovered, a crisis confronted, a crisis challenged, a crisis averted. Yeah, I couldn't really think of another, another word that went along with those others. But Esther had a decision to make. She could no longer live on the fence between the two worlds of her life. She had to make a decision and she did make a courageous decision. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai in verse 15. Go gather all the Jews who are in Susa. And fast for me. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Do you know what it is to step out in faith? That's what she had to do. It's not an easy thing to do to step out in faith. We often think, I don't have enough faith. Yet Jesus said, if you have faith as small as a grain of mustard seed, you can move mountains. 
We tend to think of Esther as the mediator who went before the king to intervene on behalf of God's people. But actually, if the Lord weren't the better mediator, there would have been no deliverance for his people. We'll talk more next time about this. But as we close, the words of Esther reverberate in our ears, don't they? And if I perish, I perish. She wasn't just talking about a possible outcome of death. She was actually talking about the inevitable outcome of death, of choosing that course of action. So don't look at her statement as this statement of incredible faith, but more as a resignation that the inevitable will probably happen. She believes there's a 100% chance she will die. But think of Jesus, our Lord Jesus, who was staring death in the face. The night he was betrayed, he's praying in the garden, and he looks up to heaven and he says, Not my will, yours be done. That brings us to our verse of the week, which is Romans 5, verse 6. Romans 5, verse 6. Let's read it out loud together. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died. For the ungodly. Let us pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word and thank you for the comfort that we receive from your word. Thank you for the challenges that we've heard in your, in your word today, Lord, in, in Esther. And I pray that we would remember Esther. That we are like her. We are faced at times with decisions that we have to make. Those decisions are sometimes very difficult. And Lord, thank you that you can give us courage. Because in our, in our nature, most of us here in this place are pretty timid. We're pretty shy. We're pretty fearful. And we're not proud of it. But Lord, you're our strength. You're our source. You're our portion and through faith in you, Lord Jesus, we have access to your power through your spirit who lives inside of us. So help us, Lord, in the midst of crises to fall on you, to fall on you as our rock, knowing that we will not be able to break you. But you will be able to break us and enable us to pursue and persevere through the things that you have in store for us. Help us to keep our eyes upon you, Lord, because it's so easy to look at all the difficulties, all the problems. Help us not to look at those things, but to look to you. Not to look ahead, but to look today to you. And thank you that Esther was able to do that. Lord, we praise you for this day, for your gospel, and we ask all these blessings in the name of Jesus. Amen.